Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Yes, Tesla. Great example for our next topic, which is oil and gasoline. And here to help us understand more about what's going on is Stephen Shork. He is the president of the Shork Group. Stephen, always a pleasure. Happy Fourth of July to you. Uh, let, you. Let's start. Where do you want to start? I, we could do gasoline prices, uh, comparing those to 2005, or maybe you want to talk about natural gas in Qatar. Where would you like to, uh, to begin? Well, I think let's start, Pim, uh, what's near and dear to everyone's heart listening, and that is gasoline prices. Go and for of it. Course, of course, gasoline prices are a function of crude oil prices. So every $1 move in the barrel of crude oil, you typically get a lag of about two or three weeks. The knock-on to gasoline on the pump is usually between two and two and a half cents. So given where gasoline prices were when crude oil prices began to tank back uh, right around Memorial Day, uh, we're looking at probably another 10-cent fall in the price of gasoline. So on the AAA survey, that would get gasoline down to about $2.10, which is more or less the bottom of what we saw last year. So from a consumer standpoint, uh, gasoline prices through the remainder of the holiday season this summer looks very favorable. So would industries or businesses that depend on consumer spending, would that spending then translate into better business for those kinds of sectors? Or is there something else that you can point us to? Well, when we had the uh, sharp sell-off in oil prices that began uh, back at the end of 2014, the concern I had was that it wasn't just in the oil markets. It was in the steel rebar market. It was in the lumber market. It was in all of the heavy industrial metal markets. So clearly, the sell-off in oil was more endemic of what was happening in the general broader commodity, given that industrial metals are, are a clear telltale of potential economic growth. This time around, uh, the industrial metals complex has had a bump from the, uh, the, the current administration. When we look at the charts of what these prices have been doing since November, you had a big spike. Then you had a corrective pullback, but prices have been holding steady. And I take that as a positive sign, uh, given uh, the potential of the demand for, for these industrial commodities, if, if, when, when and if we ever see some sort of infrastructure plan from this administration. Um, so oil prices have decoupled, and they've decoupled for a very, uh, you know, basic good reason, and that is essentially we are producing a lot of oil. And this is where Wall Street really made a poor decision back in November and December in the realm of the OPEC decision. That is to say, Wall Street was putting too much emphasis on OPEC's dwindling power uh, to dictate prices and paid little heed to the growing fact that the United States in this current environment is now the globe's swing producer when it comes to oil. So when we look at U.S. production at an over two-year high, the oil rig count up 140%. When we look at the hedges, producers are well hedged. Also, when we look at the producers, what's really interesting, Pam, is when we disaggregate the data, we can surmise that the oil producer, the only person in the world who must sell oil, 
likes to sell oil, that is hedge forward production, when spot oil prices are between $47 and $54 a barrel. So I don't think I'm going out on the limb to suggest that is the top of the market. Now, what is other interesting part of that, Tim, is when we look at the other side, the guys who must sell oil, excuse me, must buy oil, and there's only one person in the world who has to buy oil, and that is an oil refinery. When we look at their hedging activity, they've been rather quiet over the past year and a half. So even though we've had oil prices yo-yoing in between the mid-40s, mid-50s, the oil refinery, again, I emphasize, the only person who has to buy crude oil doesn't see a need to hedge oil prices at these levels. So clearly, this is telling us that this continues to be a buyer's market in the oil realm. And now, today is effectively the first trading day of the third quarter, first trading day of the second half of the year. What does that mean? Well, it means that crude oil demand, which has been record strong here through the start of the summer driving season, that's going to peak rather soon. And by the end of this quarter, we're going to take about a million barrels of demand out of the market as we go into the fall and, and we, we, we drive fewer miles. So that has to be a concern if you are a crude oil bullish investor. That's a great uh, sort of summation of what what is going on. And uh, Stephen, I maybe just give you uh, you know another uh, forty seconds or so. So, what should people be looking for right now? What's the most important thing? You know, they're listening to you. They're hearing this. What's the next you know guidepost along the way? Yeah, well, absolutely. The next guidepost is well, we've had a we had a nice corrective rebound in oil prices going into last week, and that was a function of a market that was that was really oversold. So Wall Street's risk appetite for lower oil prices had really ballooned over the past two months. A lot of that money has been exercised out. A lot of profit was taken, and now that we're into the second half, we probably are lower. Now, I, I put the, I need to put the caveat out there, Pim, that everything I've stated is already well known in the market. So that means if it's well known, that means it is priced in. So that said, this is a very telling first day of the second half of the year because we're down $1.65 as I look at my Bloomberg right. screen. That's a very bearish telltale. We got to, that was perfect. I want to thank you very much. Uh, as always, Stephen Shorky is the president of the Short Group, giving us uh, detailed information about the oil uh, and energy markets. Well, we turn our attention now to China, but in order to help us understand what's going on, I want to bring in Eric Balchunas, our senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Eric, a pleasure always to have you. Maybe you could begin by just, I know I'm going to put you in a tough spot here, because uh, explain what has happened recently to markets in Asia. And uh, I'm referring, obviously, to uh, the launch of a missile uh, by uh, the North Koreans, and we saw a tumble of about three quarters of a percent in the Japanese stock market uh, yesterday when most uh, Americans uh, were uh, on holiday. Yeah, look, I mean, this is part of international investing and in particular emerging markets. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of risk and geopolitical risk is part of that risk. Um, but on the flip side, you know, you look at some of the countries you just mentioned, in particular, we focused on China in our last research report. Um, especially mainland shares, they are basically have no correlation to the U.S. market. So while they do have these uh, times where they go down and the U.S. could go up, or 
um, there, that break of link of correlation is something that's valuable as a portfolio diversifier um, and something that's underrated, especially, again, when it comes to the mainland China shares, which investors can now get pretty easily through ETFs. I want you to just compose a, a little uh, a sort of offering in your head, you know, to explain what has changed in the Chinese market to allow uh, this new participation by non-Chinese participants. Yeah, sure. I call it the Great Wall of Isolation. And um, in China across the board, that wall is crumbling. And while China has taken some steps to open up its A-share market by issuing quota, having a, a connect between Hong Kong and China, it's really MSCI who's come around a lot. Uh, MSCI recently has said they're going to allow 222 stocks that are mainland China shares into their emerging markets index. This was covered pretty heavily two weeks ago. What we did is we looked at ETFs that most hold those 222 stocks because there's so much money benchmarked. Uh, to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, that, that once that uh, they reach full inclusion in about five years, that's going to equal about $400 billion in buy orders of these 222 stocks. And the ETF that holds the most of those on a percentage basis is ASHR. Um, that holds 78% on a weighted basis of those 222 stocks. KBA, there's a few other ones. We have a diagram on BI ETF. Uh, but basically, a lot of the HR ETFs are a great way to get ahead of that money. However, you do have to accept some volatility, like the, the, some of the things you just mentioned. Um, and a lot of people are a little skittish because the A-share market um, in 2015 went uh, gangbusters up and down. It was a sort of a mini uh, spike and crash, and I think a lot of people are a little scared. But again, this is a long-term play uh, to try to get ahead of all, the, all those uh, foreign investor, investment dollars that are headed towards mainland China. I'm wondering if you could just repeat that specific part of what you were describing, because this is something that is already being set in motion. We just have not seen the effects and necessarily really even seen the uh, actual activity of the investment. That's right. I mean, you can almost uh, imagine that the China A-share market's a new country. And it's like the MSCI Emerging Markets just identified it as an emerging market. So you're basically, and it's such a big country, um, it's $7 trillion market, that it will ultimately be 17% of the Emerging Markets Index which along with the offshore shares would make China about 40% of that index. That's how big China is. And so what people are, the reason they're noticing and excited about this is that that 17% of the emerging markets, there's $2 trillion benchmark to it. So um, though that money will go and buy those stocks because people are, there's passive in, um, ETFs and index funds that track MSCI emerging markets, but there's also active managers who are trying to beat it. So in order to beat the emerging markets index, you're going to have to buy some A shares to make sure you don't uh, lag. And so that's why this opening up, uh, especially with MSCI, is such a big deal in terms of opening up that market. Um, and there's other countries that might be promoted, like Taiwan and South Korea. So ultimately, you could be looking at an emerging markets index that's 50% China in five to seven years. Wow. That's something to take in. So, all right, now, so give us the detail then on the differences between the various uh, exchange-traded funds, because, you know, there are a lot of uh, acronyms and a, and a lot of fancy uh, sort of names to these things, and you, you actually take a look inside. Yeah, so... China is so complicated. I call it, it's like an alphabet soup because of, because of the regulation, there's all these different share classes, A shares, H shares, red chips. I'll make it easy. If an investor just wants to make a play 
on that foreign investment that's coming over. ASHR, the Deutsche Bank A-Share ETF, is probably the best bet. KBA, which is the Crane Shares A-Share ETF, would also work well. Those are, they already own those 222 stocks. For investors who want, say, uh, a, like a, a wide, a diverse China ETF that includes A-Shares, there's not that many. You sort of have to pick your, your share class. Uh, and that's why it's difficult. So a lot of people might use MCHI, M-C-H-I, which holds every other share class, in combination with ASHR, which is A-shares. The, there is one that tracks all of them with the ticker CN. Uh, doesn't have a lot of assets yet, but that gives you everything in one shot. Alternatively, if you're looking for an emerging markets index or ETF, uh, there's one out there that's designed already to be like where MSCI will be in those five to seven years. It's already 40% China, and that's, the ticker on that is KEMP. It was specifically designed Do it again. to look like KEMP. Okay. It's the Crane Shares Emerging Markets, right. and it was designed to look like what MSCI Emerging Markets will look like in seven years. So that's sort of skating to where the puck will be. I got to say, that's a really helpful guide that you've provided, Eric. Thank you. Uh, the composition of these uh, various ETFs uh, and their volume of trading will sometimes, uh, well, let's just say, you be in a, in conflict. Where do you see the most liquidity for uh, these ETFs? Who's going to be the most liquid? Who's on the most platforms? And uh, who's going to be able to take this uh, and run with it? Yeah, so for A-shares uh, ETFs, ASHR is by far the most liquid this thing trade, it has $400 million, which isn't a ton, but it's liquid enough. You could probably just put in a market order and be fine. Then there's a... It's, just to let you know, they, uh, current volume is 138,000 shares. Yeah, I mean, that's, but the spread's one to two cents. I Correct. Mean, it's, it's liquid enough. It's not SPY. No, no, and, and, no, yeah. and, it, and it, you know, no leverage, no swap-based, nothing no, like I that. I mean, this literally tracks China A shares. I am shocked more people aren't buying the China A-share market. Again, it's like they discovered a new country that has $7 trillion worth of market cap and nobody owns it. Um, but ultimately, people are going to own it, so it's a way to get ahead of it. Like I said, China A-shares are largely, you know, only 2% of that market is foreign-owned. So these, uh, there's a couple A-share ETFs that do track those, those stocks, and ASHR is the most liquid one of the group, and it's the, it's the one that has the most weighting overlap with the foreign investment that's coming in, uh, the, those 222 stocks that right. will ultimately be in the MSCI emerging markets. Well, I got to say, this is f uh, wonderful for you, uh, for us to have you uh, tell us all this. Eric Balchino, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He knows everything about the ETF market. You know, one of the things to always focus on is the strategies that money managers employ. And uh, I'm looking at things such as low debt with strong cash flow, low price to earnings ratio, multi-cap maybe with a small to mid-cap focus, and also the idea of trying to dominate a niche in the market that has a high barrier to entry. And here to tell us a little bit more about these uh, ideas and this strategy is George Young. He is a partner and portfolio manager at Villary funds and he joins us on the phone uh great uh george great to have you with us thanks for being here and uh, belated happy fourth of july to you 
Thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right. Let's start off. I want to get this idea of uh, looking at your, your strategy uh, because I know that you've got the Villery Equity Fund, V-L-E-Q-X, and this is solely focused on equities and it emphasizes uh, the potential in small and mid-sized companies. What are your, some of your criteria? and maybe just give us an example? Sure, be glad to do that. Uh, our criteria is something that has a low PE ratio, something that has a moat built around it, somewhat unassailable. That's either by patents or some sort of service that they're able to provide that others aren't able to do. So a couple of examples of that. One would be a software company, Ebix, um, that is a, a mid-cap company. They're insurance software. So if you think about it right now, Lloyd's of London, as an example, is still paper-based. Uh, a lot of the criteria for uh, meeting insurance and analyzing insurance risk are done by paper, by people meeting and deciding what to do. All that can be digitized. It can be stored properly, and it's something that can be uh, analyzed on a more efficient basis. That's where EBICS comes into play. They link brokers and agents to try and assess risk. They've got 80% recurring revenue. That's very important in our world because you want some predictability in any investment you're going to make. How did, how did you find uh, Ebix, and have you visited them in uh, Johns Creek, Georgia? We've met with management before. Uh, they've got a CEO that owns uh, 10% of the company. That's very important to us that we have board and management who are engaged. Who Robin, Robin Reyna. Exactly, exactly. Uh, he takes a very strong interest in what's going on in what is his company, even though it's a publicly owned company. He founded it, so he takes it very personally. That's exactly what we want. We want fellow investors to be investing alongside of us, and we want engaged management and board members. How did you find Ebix? Was that a screening process? Was that a personal uh, effort on the part of one of your analysts or colleagues? Well, yes, good question. We depend on analysts to introduce us to different ideas, and then we follow through. We worked with a number of analysts and brokers for over 25 years, so they know the type of companies that we like. And they are very focused on the type of companies that fit into our portfolio. They know we want investments for a long term, stocks that we can hold for three, five, ten plus years. And our turnover reflects that. Our turnover is about 15% per year, meaning we don't want to uh, uh, have any of our clients exposed unnecessarily to taxes. We want to buy investments that we believe can work for a long period of time, even though there may be some volatility. Our clients understand that over the long period, our investments have generally rung true. Well, you know, it's interesting looking at EBIX because it seems to fit the narrative that you just described. Uh, what do you go through when the stock, let's say, is, you know, in the 60s, 64 was the the high back in, uh, I believe, March of this year. Uh, what do you say or how do you you know react to the fact that, okay, it was 64 in March, it's 53 now, uh, but there are reasons why you want, want it and may want even more of it? Sure. What we try to do is to try make an assessment of what the company's value is based on what their potential earnings may be. Uh, so that means that we're buying something for longer-term growth. Uh, this is a company we just started buying about three weeks ago, and we're buying it right now as we speak. It's a great company that uh, offers that long-term potential. And in, in terms of a pricing scenario, we're not overly concerned about where it was. We're more concerned about where it's going to be. So in that case, from a, a, a PE standpoint, it's relatively cheap. We think it's only trading at 15 times next year's earnings, 
and would try to look forward three years out and feel that it can grow at something like 25% per year. Well, the symbol there is uh, EBIX for this particular uh, stock, uh, EBIX, uh, based in uh, Johns Creek, uh, Georgia. Stock is down about 7% uh, so far this year. Uh, You know, I'd like to turn your attention, uh, if you can, to the visits that you make to company management and the interviews that you do with competitors and and suppliers. Uh, With or without naming names, could you give us an example of one of those meetings that maybe turned you against making the investment or made you gun shy about it? Sure, sure. I've got a great example. There was a company a few years ago that had a proprietary interest in tires, manufacturing and replacing tires. If you go back about eight years ago, tires were very expensive for mining because at that point, commodities were very expensive. Um, It's interesting because one of the founders, who's pretty well-respected, uh, made some disparaging comments uh, uh, about women and uh, their ability to understand the mining and the tire business. Um, we didn't tolerate that, and irrespective of whether he's a good leader or not, uh, that reflected poorly on, the, on, on management, and uh, we owned that for about a day and a half, and that was it. That's a very interesting. Uh, that's a very interesting determination. Uh, obviously, it's something that doesn't even take a balance sheet to figure out. No, it doesn't. And sometimes investments can can lend themselves to that. Um, you know, none of us are perfect, but we would hope that uh, board and management understands the consumer, understands the way the world works, and uh, just you know, at least some civility. And I dare say we could have a little more civility in the world today. Well said. Uh, Speak, if you can, about any recent changes, whether you've been adding to your cash positions. Do you feel uh, that uh, having uh, something uh, increased liquidity will be useful uh, in the the near future? Um, That's a very good question. Right now, we are having a little bit of a difficult time finding investments. So we're about 90% invested. We've got about 10% in cash. So that's a good barometer of how enthusiastic we are about the market right now. Um, that being said, every day the market offers many opportunities. There's a stock that um, stumbles, for, for, for lack of a better word. A good example of that was, um, I'm sure listeners remember, the Carnival Cruise Lines wreck in the Mediterranean a few years ago. About yes, with the ago. Costa Concordia. That's exactly right. So when we looked at that, we had uh, Carnival Cruise on our, our, our radar at the time, coincidentally, and realized we could fairly quickly assess what the damages were going to be, environmental, uh, personal injury, et cetera. And those are, are capped, for better or worse. So it looked like a great opportunity. We bought the stock. It was about 10% off after that accident. And uh, it, it contrasted with the BP oil spill that happened here in, in the Louisiana area, where that was very difficult to put a number on what that cost would be. So we bought Carnival Cruise Lines, uh, given that opportunity. So that doubtless will be opportunities in the market uh, on, on any given day, and uh, just a question of us being able to recognize those opportunities and act quickly upon those. Well, thanks for sharing your views, your thoughts, and some of your investments. George Young is a partner and portfolio manager at Villary Funds. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.